We'd Like a Word. Welcome to part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word with master storyteller Geoffrey Archer and me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we're going to kick off by having Geoffrey read from his new book, Traitor's Gate. So over to you, Geoffrey. This is chapter one, which is Tuesday, the 22nd of October, 1998. Commander Hawksby pulled open the bottom drawer of his desk and took out two dice, although he was not a gambling man. Superintendent William Warwick and Inspector Ross Hogan remained standing as the hawk, like a Vegas croupier, shook the dice vigorously in his right hand before tossing them onto his desk and waiting for them to settle. Five and two, said William. The hawk raised an eyebrow as he waited for William and Ross to confirm the relevance of the two numbers. Five, sir, said William, means that when we leave the palace we'll be taking the longer embankment route. And the two, Inspector? demanded Commander Hawksby, switching his attention to Ross. The password is Traitor's Gate. It's rare to find an author who can read. <laughs> Uh, read out loud, I mean. <laughs> Don't you think? It's very interesting you say that. And that's the politician in me, isn't it? It's yes. The fact I, I, and my auctioneering, which I love. And a bit of acting. What? You've done a bit of acting too. And a bit of acting as yeah. well. A bit of all, I mean, I, 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 when I read Dickens' memoirs, I, I realised he actually loved going around the country reading his books and even playing parts in them as much as he enjoyed writing them. I know. Wouldn't you But you're seen... right, Paul. You bring up, sorry, Stephen. Sorry, go on. You bring up a very interesting point. How many very good writers hate public events or hate actually having to speak? I've met one or two who said, never over my dead body, Geoffrey. And they don't like doing the voices or any gesture towards mm. that. Mm. They much prefer to do a monotone feeling, if I go down that road at all, it'll sound, it'll sound bad. I completely disagree with them. Do the voices, I think. Yes. Make it sound interesting. Yes. Although sometimes it's quite interesting to have someone else and see what they bring to it. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I could have read my last book, but Rula Lenska read it. And, oh, and, lucky you! And Rula acted all the men and the female parts, and she just brought so much dynamism to it. And and sometimes you put inflection on certain sentences. I thought, oh, I never wrote it. I didn't think about it when I was writing it that way. And yeah, it. I mean, an actor can really bring a. a and now you've got a problem. Yeah, which I will raise with you, which you're both well aware of, called. AI. My oh, publishers yes. called me and said, Jeffrey, if you come in one day and you be read for 15 minutes, we can produce all 27 of your books as if you had written them. So uh, one of the newspapers interviewed me about this and an actor came to me and said, Jeffrey, if you do that, you're going to put an awful lot of people out of work. Yeah. Indeed. Never mind getting them cloning your voice, they could probably write your next 27 books well, as well. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I, they can write, already write, a Geoffrey Archer novel. But uh, when I read it, or when I read a chapter of it, I'd like to be able to say to you, Paul, she only stopped screaming when she died. It was then that he started to scream. Cannot be written by a bloody machine. Yes. <laughs> Although... In a recent episode with Ajay Chowdhury... Oh, yes. He... you and, and he writes a good series, the Detective Kamal Rahman series, which, which I enjoy. 
he uses he writes his own books, but he does use AI tools to assist him, not just in research, but in picturing places, which he can then describe, and also giving plot suggestions like we're stuck in a room. Hmm. How might they get out? Hmm. And well, here are six ideas. Hmm. Might consider those. And which is quite surprising and unusual to have people starting to talk openly about that. I'm fascinated by the six ideas because I wrote a book many years ago called As the Crow Flies and I realised the secret was my hero going to Australia and seeing a person who was in hospital and getting from her one particular piece of information which would save his empire. And I spent... It's the only time it's ever happened. I've never had writer's block, but I didn't see a way out. And you have just put it into my mind. I spent five days. I got a way out. Very simple, because in the end, a great editor will tell you it has to be simple. I got it, and it was simple, but it took five days. What you're saying is if I press the button, he may have come up with five ideas. Well, in fact, he came up with six. He thought... I didn't, don't really like those. So then I said, well, ask again. <laughs> and then I gave him really? another six. Really? So I feel uh, uncomfortable with it mm. myself. Mm. And the satisfaction in finding it unaided is huge. Well, I I'll imagine. tell you what it was. I walked around a golf course. It has two great memories for me. I walked around a golf course where I was, where I was writing the book. On the very outside, going through this problem. And the problem was when he gets to the door and I solved it, problem was he gets on the door and a nurse opens the door and says the matron opens the door and says uh, she he says uh, charlie said charlie trumper says i want to see could it be possible to see oh she died three days ago so i'm in the i'm in the hole how do i get out now the great editor corley smith who edited jd salinger wrote in his book that if an author gets into a problem don't look don't say oh i won't do that I, do it he said doesn't matter how long it takes you to get out of the hole, stick with it because that's the reader will love and wonder how you're going to get out. So I had these days of walking around and in the middle of this golf course is Sean Connery. And all he is doing is hitting balls 300 yards. That's all he's doing, one after another, every morning, six to eight, there he is. I never spoke to him. He never spoke to me. I got back and I got, and he got the idea. He says to Matron, can I see Mrs. So-and-so? And she says she died three days ago and he's broken and turns to leave. She says, and she's Scottish. I point out it's a Scottish matron. And she says, oh, I have a letter he wanted to send and I don't want to waste the stamp, but if you're going back, and he's got the letter that tells him everything. I'm glad you're giggling, Paul, and I'll tell you why. That took five days. It did not take five minutes. Years later... I go to a restaurant and there is Sean Connery sitting in, in the corner with a friend and he waves and I, I thought this is strange. So I went over and he said, I'd just like to say thank you for those five days when you walked around and never came. It was very kind of you. And I said, I'd like to say thank you for not interrupting my <laughs> desperate way of finding out how I could get out of this problem. It's quite like that. Though, not so. now, Sean. Not now, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. This harks back to something you were saying earlier about about original stories, because the one limitation with AI is it can it isn't capable of, of original thought. So AI has to. I mean, some people have, have nicknamed it a plagiarism engine, because the only way it can generate these ideas is by looking through the entire corpus of thrillers and coming up with some ideas based on what it finds. Yes. So the six ideas it suggests to you 
will have been drawn from someone else's ideas. So at the moment, anyway, at least, it's, it's not going to present you with but an it, original option, but it may be one that you can use or adapt. I take the point, Stephen, but I think you've hit something that's very cruel about writers and writing. Originality is very unusual. Oh, it is, yeah. And when you get... Let's go back a few years. When you get a watership down, and let's face it, he never did it again. It was a masterpiece and a brilliant piece of writing. But what was that? It was genuinely original. We no one ever, no one had come up with that idea. You gave us a tip from J.D. Salinger's editor a yes. moment ago. What would be your major tip for a storyteller? a novelist, a writer. I had the great honour and privilege when I wrote Cain and Abel to be edited by Corley Smith. And it was an honour. It was like having an Oxford tutorial. Six weeks we went through that book. And he taught me so much. I mean, he just, it, was, it was like being with a tutor. Uh, it was an honour. He was drunk by lunchtime. He was drunk after lunch. They said to me, Geoffrey, work with him from 9 until 12.30. Go to lunch. Don't work in the afternoon. Go back to the page where you were before lunch and start there the next day. He won't know, and he didn't. But the honour of having those three hours every day, I mean, he taught me so much. I think I could pass on some things he taught me. It's the worst thing I told you. If you're in a, if you're in a trouble, don't get out easily. Dig the hole even deeper and the reader will be even more fascinated. But I remember he... Uh, let me tell you what a great editor does, Paul. I wrote Cain and Abel, and it was originally 120 pages of Cain and 120 pages of Abel. And the great man rang me from New York even before I'd arrived to be edited by him. And he said, I've read uh, Cain and Abel, and I'd, uh, I can see something that needs to be done immediately. And I said, well, what is that, sir? And he said, I want three pages of Cain, three pages of Abel, six pages of Cain, six pages of Abel, 12 pages of Cain, 12 pages of Abel, 24 pages of Cain, 24 pages, and then they meet. Not, He said, by the end of Cain, I, I never wanted to hear about anyone else. And by the end of Abel, I didn't want to see Cain again. You've got to stop. Well, that's damn good editing. He didn't write one word. It was all there for me. I had to see where the splits were and how it would work. And it took some time. But his genius as an editor, and I once said to the great man, well, he edited five of my books, I was very lucky, and he, he, I once said to the great man, what's the difference between an editor and a writer? He paused and said, the first draft. What a brilliant reply. That's a good reply. <laughs> because he was a brilliant editor, and, and, but he, he knew he couldn't write a book himself. That's interesting, because, I mean, for me, I mean, when people talk to... At literary festivals you talk to people who are sort of who want to be writers and that's yes. and they talk a lot about the process and there's a lot of chat about whether you're a, a, a plotter and you meticulously plot everything or whether you just you just you're a pantser you fly by the seat of your pants and you actually get that first draft down and i find that an awful lot of people do a bit of plotting but that it's the first draft that's the hard bit because once you've nailed it to the page the the real joy in the writing is the revisions. It's it's yes. the, it's it's the editing. Yeah. It's the reviewing and reviewing and yeah. reviewing, because oh. the thing I always found with the first novel I wrote was that by the time I got to the end of the book, I knew so much more about my character that when I read chapter one, of course, the character wasn't quite right, so I had to adjust you it. Have so to it start again. Almost immediately had to start again. Yeah. Of course. Well, I, I remember in the Prodigal Daughter, I presented Florentina with having a dog in chapter fourteen. 
uh, because I, I wanted the dog run over and her witnessing the dog being run over. But it hadn't had a dog until Chapter 14. So when I went back, I had to get the dog in so that when it got to Chapter 14, the reader was said, oh, I love that dog, don't kill it, don't kill it. <laughs> and so, yes, you're quite right. Very risky being cruel to a dog. Yes. Yeah. Well, That's one of the things oh, you must yes. not do, apparently. Oh, yes, but sometimes you have to take the reader by the throat. I get a lot of letters when I kill someone, and they say, why did you do that, Geoffrey? And I say, because you wrote about it. Mm, mm. Started, you mustn't go down the simple, easy path. Mm. You must excite the reader and keep them turning the page. And take your point, Stephen. I do 14 drafts of every book. I, I once read that Roy Jenkins, writing Churchill, wrote it and handed it in. I thought, I wish I was that bright. I know, it's extraordinary. <laughs> I, it's, I, went, I go back 14... And yeah. by the time I presented to the publisher, I, I think I'm there, but I certainly wouldn't want them to see the first draft. What about short stories then? Because you've written so many of those and you're well known for that too. What's special about those and, and what would be a piece of advice about short story writing from you? You're quite right. I've, I've written 92 short stories and I love short stories because sometimes you get a story, Paul, you can't make it into a novel. You know it's 10, 15 pages. And if as a child, and you are both younger than me, but as of a child you've been brought up on Somerset Maugham, on O. Henry, on Maupassant on F. Scott Fitzgerald, you realise that the art of the short story is every bit as demanding as writing a novel. So, yes, I've enjoyed immensely. And I'll give you an example. I pick them up from real human beings. I would say of the 92 short stories I've written, 62, 63, 64 have come from people who said, oh, I've got a story for you, Geoffrey. And you realise it's not a novel. They you you realise that... Everyone is going to come to you all the time now because yes, yeah, you've tra Traitor's <laughs> Gate, not complaining. 62 of your sto not short stories. And you, oh, isn't it awful when they come but to I'll me? But I'll give you one, Paul. Yeah. I was in Auckland and an old man came up to me and said, I've got a story for you. And I very polite, very old man. I said, yes, sir. He said, when I was 100, Her Majesty the Queen <laughs> That's a good opening. Sent me Back a when I was 100. Yes. <laughs> said that Her Majesty the Queen sent me a telegram. I framed it and put it on the wall. And I was determined to live to 104. So I said, why were you determined to live to 104, sir? He said, well, then my wife would be 100, and we'd have both telegrams on the wall, and I'd be ready to die. I said, well, that's amazing, sir. He said, yes, that happened this year, but the telegram didn't come. Oh, sir, I said, why didn't... Well, I, I did uh, take the measure of ringing Buckingham Palace to see if... It had all changed. And I rang the major in charge of telegrams. And he looked me up and said, yes, here's your telegram for a 100. Yes. Yes, but you haven't sent my wife's telegram for a 104. He said, uh, well, let me just check. Yes, we did. We sent it six years ago. Now, isn't that magic? That's extraordinary. Isn't that magic, Paul? <laughs> I threw my arms around him. I knew, you see, that's, that's not a novel. Yeah. That's a mag. I can say it's magnificent because it's true. It's a magnificent short story. Adrian McKinty, Irish writer who lives in America now, his book The Chain was a big success. He wrote that as a short story. Well, maybe when he was working as a taxi driver in Australia, but he never published it because he thought it's too good. It's there's more here. There's more here, and he kept it and kept it. And eventually, at a he was about to give up writing, very low point. That was plucked out and was a great success. Have you had any stories that were intended to be short stories, but then you decided actually it's going to grow into something else? Sometimes they become longer than you had expected 
in the sense you think they're a short story and they'll be good for 20 pages and they end up perhaps 35, 40. But I've never had one that I thought I could make into a whole novel. Though, of course, uh, the great Corley Smith reminded me that J.D. Salinger's masterpiece was actually only 120 pages. And it's whether you describe that as a novella or whether you describe it as a long, short story. And he edited that book, by the way. Catcher in the Rye. <coughs> yes, he, he edited Catcher in the Rye. So there I am sitting with a man who's edited Catcher in the Rye. But real life does have all the best stories. Every so often you see a photograph come up on social media and someone will put a comment like, what's the story here? There was, there was one just a couple of weeks ago which just had a, a sign on a door, a printed sign on the door saying, there's no point knocking, Julie isn't here. Okay, there's no point knocking. Julie isn't here. This was just written on the door, and he said, "I'd love to know the story." And immediately, my brain was sparking off into, You've got to "What do that. could that I be? What you. could it be?" I and agree with you. I That's fun, once, isn't it? It is. And a friend of mine once saw a glove on a wall, and he was waiting at a bus stop, and the bus didn't come, and the bus didn't come, and he kept looking at this glove on the wall, and he eventually constructed an entire short story about in the future, when they've run out of space to dump all their garbage, they've started dumping it back through time. So all these gloves and shoes and things sitting around are actually the future's garbage. They're just sending it back to us, which is an extraordinary idea. <laughs> but I love how a little cue like that can give you a story. Like I want some short stories. I go back to repeating that O. Henry, Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Maupassant, they're genius, some of those. Mm. I mean... The hair comb is, is, is a masterpiece. I mean, I wish I'd written it. I know. I've, I've always loved short stories. I mean, I think it's because when I was growing up, my school library had a complete set of John Wyndham. And John oh, Wyndham, yes. John Wyndham yes. wrote lots and lots and lots of short stories. Yes. They, they always had that lovely... Good writer, too. Yeah. one of those, They always had that lovely sort of rolled, dally sort of twisted. The story I remember really, really clearly is one called Paulie's Peepholes. Well, funny enough, it's time travel again, where these people suddenly just pop up all over the place and they're watching you and they're intangible like ghosts and you can't touch them but they're looking at what you're wearing and laughing and no one can do anything mm -hmm. about these people they're coming into your bathroom while you're in the bath and things like that and it's an advertising man who solves the problem by turning it around on them by saying come and see what your grandchildren are going to be wearing and everyone stands around to yeah. laugh at when the visitors yeah. arrive but he wrote loads like that they're and you casually brilliant. mentioned Roald Dahl yeah I'd go as far and have all your all your listeners ringing in damning me I think that was the thing he was best at. I think he was the greatest short storyteller well, of with his you. age. I'd agree with And you. the rest is, uh, the children's stories are wonderful, and the rest is wonderful, but his short stories are just They're wonderful. Magic. They really are. Magic. They do stick in your mind. They do. They're some of the yeah, ch chilling stick in my mind. And I think the short story is often maligned. People think, oh, it's, it's not really proper writing. Well, they're is not it? fashionable but at the moment, not, I'll tell no, you they're, that. They're not, I know. And, <laughs> and it's such a shame because I think, you know, with, with trying to encourage people to come back to books and reading because they've got all these other distractions now, like the internet, you know, and social media and things, one of the ways to get them back in is to give them short bites because they're, they're not watching full TV programs because they're watching short videos on YouTube. So surely short reads would be the way to bring people back into it. I wrote a hundred word short story. The Reader's Digest rang me. I wish I had it here to read you. I'm feeling guilty. Uh, and the Daily Mail decided to print it. Yes, you might be able to get it. That would be wonderful. I'll read it to you if I may be allowed to. It couldn't be 99 words, Stephen. Had to be 100. And it couldn't be 101. And that was a real challenge. Because Reader's Digest said, I mean, there's a comment in the New York Times that you're arguably the greatest storyteller of your age. We'd like you to prove it. I thought it'd be good one. <laughs> 
said, we'd like you to write a hundred-word story by this time tomorrow. And it must have, as Kipling said, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Do you know, of course, one could have said to him, get lost, I'm a busy man. Mm. But the challenge was too great, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, I went, I went to bed and I couldn't sleep that night trying to think of how I could write a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's, you've got it. I and, think and I've got it. Is Paul it has called, got it. And I'm, is it called Unique? Yes. Wow. With your, well done, Paul. And with your permission, I'll read it and I'd challenge it. Yeah. the two of you to... So, thank you very much. So I wrote this 100-word short story. Mustn't be 99 words. Mustn't be 101, 101 words. And it started off at 134... I then got it down to 112. I then got it down to 102. Are you ready? And this is yeah, absolutely. Are you ready, listeners? We are ready. Here we go. It's called Unique. One word straight away. Paris, the 14th of March, 1921. Now, the relevance there is you've only got 100 words, so you've got to make statements fairly quickly. So 1921 is a clear statement the collector a clear statement i can't say he's got a grizzly beard which has gone gray and no, he's looking course. over the top of his glasses his glasses actually have a cord on them to make sure he doesn't i can't do any of that i can only say the collector that's all that's all the time i've got the collector relit his cigar now listen you two Relit is a big word. Now you, I'm I'm cheating because I'm telling you the fourteenth draft. What happened? The collector relit his cigar, picked up the magnifying glass, and studied the triangular eighteen seventy four Cape of Good Hope. Now there are readers who will know what an 1874 Cape of Good Hope is. Fine. Maybe not so many these days. Maybe no. not so many these days. But there will be some. I'm so they want to know. I'm assuming we're talking postage stamps. Yes. Yeah. So we go on. I did warn you. There were two. Very relevant. Said the dealer. So we've got a collector, and we've got a dealer. So yours is not unique. First third of the story, as Kipling would say, the beginning. The middle. How much? 10,000 francs. Now, you don't know how much, and neither do I, 10,000 francs is, but it's got to sound for 1921 a lot of money. How much? 10,000 francs. The collector wrote out a cheque before taking a puff on his cigar. Reel it. I puff on his cigar. I know it's you too. I can see her already there. Puff on his cigar. But it was no longer a light. He picked up a match, struck it, and set light to the stamp. The middle of a story. The dealer stared in disbelief as the stamp went up in smoke. The collector smiled. You were wrong, my friend, he said. Mine is unique. It's exactly a hundred words. So I put out a challenge many years ago to 
with the Daily Mail, and 20,000... The, the editor rang me and said, you're a menace, Jeffrey. And I said, yes, we know that, but <laughs> why am I a particular menace this time? He said, I had two staff reading the stories. I've now got eight staff reading because so many people joined in. So many people found it an interesting challenge mm. to write a 100-word story mm. with a beginning, mm. with a middle, with an end, not 101, not 91. And the entries were amazing. I mean, look, people Do you really remember amazing. the last word you deleted in your Help. final round? I've of... lost it. Can you get it back, Paul? <laughs> I'm not clever. I'm no good with machinery. If you can get it back, I can remember I deleted, and I think it's something like he said came out, yeah, or something very simple. Uh, the dealer stared in disbelief as the stamp went up in smoke. The collector smiled. You were wrong, my friend. He said, minus we, no. there was another, you're quite right, there were another two words. Uh, uh, it could have been 10,000 francs, he said. Mm. And the he said had to come out mm. because mm. I, I was 102. Mm. But anybody listening who would like to have a go, that's the 14th attempt. And I started at 132 words. It's a good discipline. I mean, there's a there's a thing that happens on social media every year talking about Hemingway's six word story, uh, yes, which was for sale, baby shoes, um, never worn, no, never worn, yeah, which is just extra, a whole story in six words, and some of those are very clever that people come up with every mm. year. On that note, we are at the end of part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word with Jeffrey Archer, and me, Paul Waters, and me, Stephen Colgan. Join us in part three. Mm -hmm.